Choir. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to return with me to the Gospel of Mark as we continue this series. Mark chapter 7 is where we'll be. We'll be looking in a moment at verses 31 through 37. Mark chapter 7 in a moment we'll be reading from verses 31 to verse 37. In our study last week, if you were with us, we saw the mercy of God spilling over to a Canaanite woman whom Jesus describes with two words in our English language that are only given to her and one other person. She says that he says to this lady that this lady has great faith. And she has the kind of faith that all believers should seek to exhibit. This week in our study, we will reveal the mercies of God continuing to spill out into the Gentile nations as Jesus continues his his ministry and his thrust outside of national Israel into these Gentile surrounding areas. And we again find Jesus being compassionate for his people. In fact, we see that Jesus is our powerful, compassionate Savior. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. No, I'm not sick. I feel fine, except for one thing called allergies that come up this time of year, every year. How many else have that going on? All right, okay. Well, then we can all join this together. I'll do the best that I can. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. It says this. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the sea coasts of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and spit and touched his tongue. And looked up into heaven, and he sighed, and said unto him, Apaphata, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more, a great deal they published it. And there were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all these things. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Certainly, if Jesus of Nazareth is who he claimed to be, and he claimed to be God in human flesh, then we would fully expect him to performing, be performing miracles as he has the power of the supernatural God. I say that to say this. To reject the miracles of Christ is to reject Christianity itself. To reject the miracles of Christ is to reject salvation. But to receive Christ is to receive the totality of who He is and what He accomplished. He is the Savior of our sins who performed miracles while on earth. Now, there are four basic reasons that Christ performed His miracles. Jesus never did any one of his miracles out of convenience, out of personal convenience. Jesus never performed a miracle to say, I'm too tired to make breakfast, poof, here's an omelet for you. He never did any of that. In fact, even in his journeys, he could have said, I'm here in this city, Capernaum, and I'd rather be in Decapolis, and poof, he's in Decapolis right then. But he never did that. He traveled. Jesus never performed his miracles out of his own sense of personal convenience, but he did have a purpose for miracles, and there is a fourfold purpose for them. Number one, Jesus' miracles were authenticating. They authenticated 
that he was who he said he was. He was the divine Son of God. No mere human being could have accomplished the things that he was doing. In fact, Jesus even said this when he performed a miracle. In Mark chapter 2, we read in verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, and then he performed this miracle. They were authenticating. But they were also fulfilling. They demonstrated that Jesus was the promised Messiah in that they fulfilled the promised Messiah's prophecies. In the Old Testament, it prophesied and it predicted that the Messiah would come with the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the evidences of the empowering of the Spirit is that in his life, through his life, he would be performing miracles. In fact, when John the Baptist was thrown into prison, we read that John the Baptist, of all people, began to have doubts. Is Jesus actually the Messiah? And John's disciples come to Jesus asking Jesus, what should we tell John? And Jesus sends them back to John the Baptist by saying, go and show again those things which you do hear and see. What are they hearing and seeing? Matthew 11, verse 4. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And so miracles are fulfilling. They are fulfilling. The promised Messiah is here. And miracles are loving. Miracles demonstrate the compassion of Christ toward those who suffer. Jesus, in the midst of suffering human humanity and the difficulty that they faced, reaches out and cares for those who were often passed over by the world. He met them at their point of need. He exercised his power to make them whole. He would heal even lepers. Every miracle is a statement of his love toward those in need. And miracles are, fourthly, revealing They reveal the power of God in salvation. What Jesus did in the physical realm is a vivid picture of what he is going to do in the spiritual realm. This is why, again, he would say in Mark 2, verse 10, that you would know that the Son of Man has power to forgive and heal sins. He goes and heals this man. And so the physical miracle is a vivid picture of the spiritual reality that Christ can forgive sins. It reveals that. And so for these four reasons, Jesus comes performing miracles. And in the four Gospels, there are 37 separate miracles recorded. 38, if you include the resurrection, which I do. And so 38 miracles are recorded. And they are all authenticating, fulfilling, loving, and revealing. Donald Barnhouse tells the story of his professor in Princeton Seminary, a professor by the name of Robert Wilson, He was a renowned scholar and an astounding linguistic in his own ability to write, according to Barnhouse. And he was invited back to speak at chapel one day, as Barnhouse was a student there. And Professor Wilson was to present for service, and afterward he was approached by the speaker, and one of the speakers there asked Professor Wilson, or stated this, he said, "'If you come back, I will not come hear you preach. I only come once.'" I am glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry training will be like. In other words, this parent had come to hear this professor speak, kind of determining, is he going to actually help my children have a big God view or a little God view? 
Well, when Barnhouse asked for an explanation, what, what are you talking about? Wilson replied, well, some men have a little God and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take, of the, take care of the inspiration and transmission of Scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God. I call them big godders, and they will have a blessed ministry. Here's the question for you. Do you have a big God view or a little God view? The miracle we look at in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, is an attestation of the deity of Christ. And we see his compassion for his people in the midst of their suffering, and this is a documentation of his messiahship. He is a powerful, big God, but he is also a compassionate, loving God. And what we discover in this miracle is that Jesus, the powerful, compassionate Savior, has the power to open closed lives. This miracle of the healing of the blind and the deaf man is found only here in Mark's Gospel. It's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. So there is a lesson that Mark wants to give to us that is unique to Mark's Gospel. And the lesson is that he is not just a compassionate Savior, he is a powerful Savior. And we must begin by noting the strategic withdrawal of our Lord, because we've noted the footsteps of Jesus in Mark's account, and we now see that Jesus continues to do something and continues to tell people to do something. We see here the long, securitous route that Jesus now travels to avoid Galilee. There is a brewing hostility that is rising in Galilee. So we read in verse 31 that again, he's doing it again. Jesus departs from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and he came into the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And this is not like a direct route. He's avoiding another more direct route. Now that is a massive movement in one verse. In one verse, We are following miles, days of foot travel. And let me remind you of what is going on. Jesus has just spent a year and a half in Galilee. And toward the end of that year, there was a a rising hostility against Christ, and that rising hostility has come from the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are actually making their ventures from Jerusalem to where Jesus was ministering, not to learn from him, but to entrap him. And they, they, they want him gone. And this hostility has become so intense that they are already ready. The religious leaders are already ready to put Christ to death. But it is not yet time for Christ's crucifixion. And so Jesus withdraws. In Mark 7, verse 24, he begins his withdrawal. In Mark 7, verse 24, it says, And from thence he arose and went to the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into a house, and he would have no man know it. In fact, beginning in Mark 7, verse 24, to the end, all the way of chapter 9, is one big block of Jesus' ministry, often referred to as the withdrawal ministry. This is a window of time that Jesus withdraws, and it's about six months long. Now, here we are. 
You can see the different places that he's been, and you can see where Jesus is. He has withdrawn now from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and he moves up further north, not on the map or indicated there, he's moving up further north to Decapolis. And so he's leaving, as you can see on the map, he is leaving the coastlines of national Israel. And he's making his journey now, and he's ministering, and he will now for the next six months, to a predominantly not Jewish countrymen, but instead to these Gentiles. And so in this withdrawal ministry, he is on the parameters of Palestine. He will hug the shorelines of the Mediterranean Sea on the outside of Israel. He is in Gentile territory because there is Jewish hostility. And this is now the northernmost part of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you were to travel Jesus' earthly ministry, I know in, in Boston, I'm from the New England area, some of you are as well, you, you travel the Freedom Trail, and there's that, that red line that goes all the way through Boston. It's pretty fascinating, and it stops at historical landmarks along the way. And if they did something like that with Jesus' ministry, and you had a red line to follow Jesus' walking path, as it were, this would be as far north as you ever go. What we learn is that there is a time to advance and there is a time to withdraw in the ministry of Jesus. There's a time to push the issue and there's a time to withdraw in wisdom. And Jesus is now turning his attention away from Israel and the Jews and he is trafficking into Gentile territory. And in some ways, this becomes a foreview of the emergence of the church and the expansion of the gospel that will be preached first to Israel and then to the Gentiles. In Mark 7, verse 31, it says, And he came into the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. Did you see it there? This is not the first time that Jesus has gone to Decapolis. After Jesus went to the east side of the Sea of Galilee and cast out demons, they went and they heard of the swine, and they, put, they cast the demons into the swine, and then after that he went to Decapolis. In fact, if you're in Mark, you can see Decapolis listed in Mark chapter 5, verse 20. It says, And he departed, and he began to publish in Decapolis how great things that God had done for him. So that's the, de- the demon-possessed man that Jesus has healed, He is going to go to Decapolis to tell people about what Jesus had done for him. So when Jesus now comes to Decapolis, people know about Jesus, who was the, if you will, and this is, anytime you use an analogy or a parallel, it breaks down, and this one certainly will pretty quickly, but who was the John the Baptist if Decapolis, right? John the Baptist was the one crying out, this is Jesus, here he comes. Well, the the guy crying out, preparing people to learn about Jesus in Decapolis was the maniac. Think about that for a moment. And here he comes, and Decapolis, that word, as you can probably figure it out, means ten cities. So Deca, of course, is ten, and Opolis means city. So this is a confederation of ten Gentile cities that have clustered together and have been built by Pompeii to preserve Greek Greek culture in this Hebrew-Semitic Jewish area. Their purpose of Decapolis was to be Greek. So Jesus, the Jew, is going to go to the Greek people. They're very proud of their Greek culture. They have formed this alliance to preserve their Greek culture. This is a stronghold of Gentile influence, is what I'm saying. This is not just your, your, you know, another Gentile city. This is where they parade themselves in Greek culture and all of the false little gods that surround it, by the way. The Greek pantheon of gods would have been known to these people, very well known to these people. 
All of the mythology that surrounded that would not just have been passing. This would have been, in, this would have been a core of their school curriculums. This is who these people are. They, they are steeped in little God theology. And here comes Jesus, the true God, the only God. And our Lord is very strategic in his movement and in his placement. And this is a time in his life where he is withdrawing, but not into isolation. He is withdrawing from those who should know he is the big God to go preach to those who are worshiping little gods so that they may know he is the true God. So Jesus is not on a spring break here. He is still ministering, and it is strategic. And he is continuing to ask the same question. Do you believe in me? But this time he's asking it to those who have worshipped all kinds of things. And into that group who have now begun to I think, have some cracks in the foundations of their belief, sovereignly done, because they're, they've been worshiping these false Greek gods, and now they see this maniac tell them about Jesus, and there's some fascination there, not only from him, but we've learned from Mark's gospel that the news of Jesus is now spreading all around the region. And so, Jesus comes, and they carry a man to Jesus. And I want you to note the sobering weight that this man carried. This now leads us to this deaf man. Now in Decapolis, Jesus enters and he is immediately recognized. And the crowds begin to gather and there's a buzz in the air. And we read, and they bring unto him one that is deaf and had an impediment in his speech. Now the they, or those who bring him, refers to people in the crowd. These unnamed somebodies, certainly in the plural, gather and they bring their friend, and no doubt they are concerned friends of this man. And this man, according to Scripture, suffers a double handicap. He he can't hear and he can't speak. And his friends take upon themselves to bring him to Jesus. And this, to me, is very reminiscent of Mark 2, is it not? Where we have four men bringing their lame friend to Jesus and lowering him down, even opening up a roof to get their friend to Jesus. And you can imagine these friends pushing their deaf and dumb friend through the large crowd to get to Jesus. And this is the greatest thing anyone can ever do for anyone else. The greatest thing you can do for your friend is to bring your friend to Jesus. Moms and dads, the greatest thing you'll ever do for your child is to bring your child to Jesus. The greatest thing you can do for your friend, for your work associate, for a loved one, is to bring your friend to Jesus. And that's what's going on here. Matthew's gospel is helpful in this account. Matthew does not give an account of this miracle, but he does give background to this time in Decapolis. It doesn't specifically talk about this miracle, but Matthew does talk about the surrounding events in Nicopolis. Matthew says, And Jesus departing from thence and came nigh to the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And so there's a major mountain in the immediate area of these ten different cities in Decapolis. And you can read in Matthew's account to give a visual in your mind's eye of what is taking place. Jesus is on a mountain. 
And a great multitude came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So these friends are going to travel up a mountain to get their friend to Jesus. This is a time in which he is now back in this general area. The word spreads in Mark 7. We read that Mark now zeroes in on one of hundreds of people who were being brought to Jesus. And we must ask, why does Mark sober in or zero in on the sobering weight of this one man? Because there are, according to Matthew's account, hundreds of others that are being saved. Matthew's account gives us the shotgun blast, right? He tells us there are hundreds of people hearing about Jesus at this point. Mark's gospel is like the one rifle shot. One specific individual is focused in on. And this man was deaf, having a total inability to hear. He spoke with difficulty. Many times a speech impediment is directly related to a hearing difficulty. And this man is in a very dire state. There is nothing he can do for himself. Nothing his friends can do for him. There is nothing that this world can offer him. And it says in verse 32, And they beseech him. They plead with Jesus, Put your hands upon him. Obviously they have seen Jesus do miracles. My guess is this is not the first of the hundreds that have been healed. Maybe they've seen other hundreds being healed. And now they beseech, heal this man. And they knew of Jesus' kind, compassionate hand, and they beseech him. That's a very strong word. They're calling out to him. They are pleading with him. Actually, the idea carried here is they keep on beseeching. They will not give up. Before we move on, I just want to say this, that all of us need to be doing some beseeching for our friends. Don't miss in this miracle seeing yourself. You need to be one of the they in verse 32. All of us here today need to be continually going into the world and bringing people to Jesus. Bringing others to Christ ought to be your priority. This is the most important thing you can do for anyone else, far more important than giving them a warm loaf of bread, is to bring them to the bread of life. And you need to make this be your partnership. Notice it says they. They were working together. There is a certain power in numbers for gentle persuasion. I had a youth pastor who used to say, I, I, don't, I don't mind peer pressure as long as it's positive. <laughs> this is kind of a positive peer pressure. We are all going to work together to get this person to Christ. And, and bringing others to Christ ought to be your pleading. Even as they, these implored the Lord in verse 20, 32, it's not just inviting them to church or dropping a tract on a table. There needs to be an entreating with that person and a pleading before the throne room of God. That is the weight we see this man carrying in our text, but the weight he is carrying is carried by his friends. Do you carry the burden with you this morning that there are some you know that do not know Christ as your Savior? Does that burden you? Are you pleading with your Lord? Lord, would you, would you save these? Would you allow me to bring them to your feet? Would you, would you heal them of their sins? Would you show them of their need of a Savior? And so we see the powerful, compassionate Savior. We see in this group of men, they see him as a big God, but there's a surprising work of Jesus that's done now. 
The different ways God draws people to himself are, are awesome, aren't they? Just to, at the close of our service, we're going to have an opportunity to read someone's salvation testimony as two more join our church. And I, I love hearing, and I'm, I know you do too, the testimonies of others. And you get to see just the different ways that God works to bring people to himself. And here's a surprising one, though. Jesus responds to their request in a method that is unlike any other we've read in his miracles so far. And there are steps that he takes, two in verse 33 and three more in verse 34, that surprise us. Jesus deals with this man, first of all, personally. Look what it says in verse 33. He took him aside from the multitude. In doing this, Jesus was making this man feel individually important. All of our Lord's focus and attention is going to be directed on this man alone. And with great sensitivity, Jesus pulls this man aside basically to say, you are individually important to me. Jesus deals with this man directly. There was a touch, it says, and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched the man's tongue. Now, at first glance, this seems strange, but as just a moment of meditation, you realize the sensitivity of Christ Jesus is making a direct point of contact with this man. He is touching exactly where the man's need was. This man is deaf and he can't speak. He can't maybe communicate clearly except through motion what his need was. And without even the need for this man to communicate through motion what his need was, Jesus already knew his need. And he put his fingers in his ears because in his ears he couldn't hear. And he touched his tongue with compassion to say, I know where you are. I know where your need is. And I am directly involved with you. This is a touch of compassion. It's a touch of mercy. And Jesus deals with this man non-verbally. Look at verse 34. And looking up to heaven. This is indicating to the man, without speaking a word, because this man couldn't hear, Jesus was indicating exactly where the help would come from. He was using nonverbal cues to communicate to a man who could not hear verbally. And the man is deaf. So Jesus looks at him and then looks up. As if to communicate, your help is from above. And then he deals with this man honestly. The Bible says that Jesus sighs. And this is a sigh of an inward groan. And Mark emphasizes it here because this is a sympathizing heart of Jesus. And what Jesus is communicating to this man and to those who are now observing this interaction between Jesus and this man is a deep sigh of feelings. I know how you feel. And Jesus deals with this man commandingly, we could say. He says unto the man, apafta, this is Aramaic, which is the mother tongue of our Lord. And Mark translates it for us because this would have been read by a non-Semitic crowd. Mark's gospel is now going forward to Gentiles, and so Mark translates from Aramaic to the Gentile crowd so they would know what is being said. Be opened. It's a command, and it's a marvelous picture and scene of our Lord. 
He is pulling this man aside from the crowd. He is is directing this man. He is reaching out to this man. He is touching this man. He is communicating to this man. And the only way this man who could not hear could be communicated to, he loved this man. And we know what to expect in verse 35 because our Lord's commands are always obeyed. When Jesus says opened, it's just right away. And straightway his ears were opened. I did a word study on other places where this verb for opened is used in the New Testament. It's interesting to think about this. As easily as the Lord opened the heavens of the baptism of Christ, it's the same word. That's that's how opened this man was. As easily as the Lord opened his mouth when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, that's the same word. As, As easily as the Lord opens the door to give answers to prayer, the same word. As easily as the Lord opened the tombs for the resurrection of Christ, it's the same word. Just that easily, he opens the man's ears, and for the very first time, he can hear, and immediately the impediment of his speech is gone. Verse 35, the string of his tongue was loosened, and he spoke plainly. His tongue had been held captive as a prisoner to his own physical conditions, and the Lord let it loose. And when it let it loose, he spoke praises to God. No wonder B.B. Warfield said years ago about the miracles of Christ, he said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven down with him. And the signs which accompanied his ministry were but trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven. That is what our Lord has done here. He has brought heaven down and it has descended upon a deaf mute. I once was deaf, but now I hear. I was blind, but now I see. Friend, Jesus can change your life in an opening in an instant. He is that powerful. He is that loving. And as the crowd saw this. They had seen, according to Matthew's Gospel, many other miracles, but something about this miracle stood out to them. And they were shocked by it. And I want you to see the stunning wow of the crowd in verses 36 and 7. What was the response that the crowd had to this miracle? Verse 36, and he charged them that she should tell no one. He's done this before. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal. (laughs) I love, I actually like the King James language here. It's like, he said stop, and it was like, it, 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 I, I guess I have children that are, that are toddlers, and it's, it, I feel like it's almost like when you tell them not to do something, that's exactly what they're going to do. I, I feel like that's kind of what they're doing. And, and, but even more so, they just could not bottle it up. Because, Mark says, they were beyond measure astonished. Mark just layers on the wow words, right? I mean, there was a great deal. They were beyond measure. They were astonished of all the things that he had done well. And he makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. As you saw earlier in in, in the study of Mark, Jesus often told people after he healed them not to go around telling others. And this was mainly to keep the focus not on his healing ministry, but on his teaching ministry. 
But this was also to avoid a premature confrontation with the leaders of Jerusalem. But good news is hard to stay quiet for long, and people couldn't keep it to themselves. And the Greek words Mark uses here that says beyond all measure, it could be, it can't, it's basically the idea is it cannot be measured. Right? I, I, Mark's basically saying by using those words, I'm not sure that through written word I can communicate just how riled up the crowd was at this point. It, it, they were just amazed. They were overwhelmed with what Jesus has done. And notice what they said. He has done all things well. By the way, this specific language echoes Genesis 1. It, it affirms the work of God's good creation. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. When God does something, he always does it well. He never does sloppy or substandard work. What he begins, he finishes. He always does it to perfection. And friend, you can be confident, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. Jesus never leaves you half finished. It's not like he healed one ear, but not the other. When he was healed, he was healed. And he makes the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. And why highlight this? This echoes Isaiah 35, which prophesies He will come and save you. Jesus, the Messiah, will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. They're saying, when they're saying this, this is what they're saying, that's the Messiah. That's who we've been looking for. But guess who says this? Not the Jews. The Gentiles. That's kind of the stunning wow when I read it. <laughs> of all the crowds who saw the miracles, the ones who pointed to prophecies were the ones outside national Israel. The crowd had every reason to be astonished beyond measure. It's not every day that you see miracles like this. But why highlight this one? Mark wants us to say, this is him. You don't have to keep waiting. That's the Messiah. American evangelist D.L. Moody and his music director Ira Sankey held many meetings in Britain. They were from America. In fact, they were from Northfield, Massachusetts, which isn't too far from where I grew up. On occasion, Mr. Moody, though, and Ira Sankey would travel to Britain. And when they did, they would often express concern because as they traveled there, Moody would say the, the, the people hosting the meetings in Britain wouldn't let the gypsies attend. And that bothered D.L. Moody. In fact, Moody decided, if you won't let the gypsies attend the meetings at your churches, I'll host meetings at their churches. And so Moody and Sankey traveled to the gypsy encampments in Epping Forest near London and preached there. And as he and Sankey were leaving, Mr. Sankey's eyes fell on an eager young boy. And he put his hands on the head of this young boy because Ira Sankey had seen this boy throughout these meetings really be moved, saved, and called of God. And Sankey just as a, as a musician and a preacher himself just felt like this young boy, there's, God's going to use him in a special way. And he said, O oh Lord, if this dear boy has been, never accepted Thee as your Savior, may he do so. And Lord, if he does, make a preacher out of him. Well, many years went by and the Lord abundantly answered that prayer. The boy, now a man, became an evangelist, used of God in incredible ways. He was popularly known as Gypsy Smith. 
Dipsy Smith preached to tens of thousands of people all over the world, and he visited America many times, and on one occasion in the first decade of the 20th century, he was finally able to make his way back up to Northfield, Massachusetts, where Ira Sankey played the organ most meetings Sundays, and D.L. Moody preached. By the way, their pastor was C.I. Schofield, if you didn't know that quite the powerhouse team in Merrifield, Massachusetts at one point. And Gypsy Smith made his way over there, and he wanted to speak to the Iris Sankey that had prayed for him. And he came up to him, and Iris Sankey, now elderly, nearly blind, listened as the man, Gypsy Smith, said, do you remember the time when you and Mr. Moody visited the Gypsy camp in Epping Epping Forest, and you prayed for a young boy? And Sankey said, for all these years, I do remember. And Gypsy replied, I am that boy. And he said, you know, Mr. Sankey, I never get into the pulpit to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, but that I still feel the pressure of your hand on my head. And the last time he visited America, then in his 80s, Gypsy Smith met a man around the same age. Ira Sankey was now in heaven. And he met a young boy around the same age that he was, And the young boy said, Gypsy Smith, I have listened to you preach. How can you be that old and be that excited? (laughs) And Sir Gypsy Smith said, I have never got over the wonder of it all. There's a song in your songbook called The Wonder of It All. It was written by a person who remembered and heard the story of Gypsy Smith's Conversion and call to the ministry. And he heard that phrase, and he said, I'm going to put it to song. Should we not be astonished beyond measure at what Jesus has done? Should we not be able to pause and reflect, if it were not for this person or this incident or the open word of God in my life at this moment, I would not be here. I would not know Christ, but Christ you burst through the crowds and, and, and you showed heaven to me. So how do we apply this message to ourselves? I would like to go straight to our relationship with God with the phrase, verse 34, be opened. God wants the ears of your heart to be opened, friend. He wants you to hear what he is saying. He wants you to listen to his word. He wants you to be open to his truth. God wants your mouth to be loosed. He wants you to talk to Him. He wants you to praise Him with thanksgiving and request. He wants you to use your mouth to tell others to be opened. He wants your life to be opened. Open to where God would send you, where God wants you to do, to changes and directions. The man in this text met Jesus, and the man in this text's life was never changed. Is God calling you to do something, perhaps to step out in faith? Then God says, be open. Jesus has the power, friend, to open closed lives. More than that, he has the power to change your life. Jesus can do the same thing for any person here because, verse 37, he does all things well. Whatever your spiritual condition, whatever you're saved or lost, he can deliver you from addiction and lust because he does all things well. He he can forgive your sins and, and help you to live a godly life because Jesus does all things well. He he can 
lift the burden off your shoulders and give you peace in the valley because he does all things well. And all is a mighty big word. But he's a mighty big God. Come to him and lean on the powerful, compassionate Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the story that is unfolded here of a deaf and dumb man who came to Christ and his life was changed. Lord, you are a powerful, compassionate Savior. Lord, I'm so thankful to be able to preach to a group of so many who can nod their head in rejoicing and say, Lord, I know how big you are because you changed me. Lord, some of the best testimonies of your salvation are seen right here in this room today. Lord, there may be some in this room who have never accepted Christ as their Savior. May today be the day of their salvation. May they call out to you. May you change their life. May you make all things well for them by saving them from their sins. Lord, there may be others in this room who, as they listen to this message, they, they need to think long and hard about the friends they should be bringing to you. May you cl- give a, an air of conviction as we close to run out to you and bring friends to you as well. As the instruments begin to play, Jesus, I am resting, resting. Would you respond as God has spoken to you?